Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast. Each episode, I have poignant conversations with women who fly, run, surf, ski, climb, or otherwise soar, and possess a passion for life that is infectious. These are honest and insightful conversations about dreams and reinvention, often in the face of uncertainty, doubt, or other impediments. We talk about busting paradigms, grit, working hard, and playing hard, all while building a community around the empowering metaphor of flight. I am your host, Sylvia Winter, a pilot, runner, mother, skier, list maker, and apparently podcaster. I believe that when we share our stories, own our fears, and dismantle our perceived limitations, the possibilities are boundless. Whether you're pursuing your passion or simply love the idea of possibility and wonder, this podcast is for you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get started. Hey, it's Earth Day 2021. And even if you are listening to this another time, it's a great day to honor and celebrate our collective home and to host a conversation with a woman driven by her passion and connection to the earth and specifically the ocean and coastal communities. Shannon Switzer Swanson is a surfer, scientist, National Geographic explorer, photographer, journalist, and social ecologist from California. Her research blends theory and practice from the fields of anthropology, psychology, and marine ecology to address today's most pressing marine conservation issues. She is also an explorer, having traveled to remote areas of Indonesia, South America, and Africa, living close to her subjects and integrating into local lives. But she first got her start with Nat Geo as a National Geographic Young Explorer studying the watershed of her own local river in San Diego and tracing the effects of upstream contamination for surfers and the ocean ecosystem. Her allyship with Nat Geo makes her one of a growing list of groundbreaking scientists, conservationists, educators, and storytellers. And she was honored in 2017 with the National Geographic Adventurer of the Year. It's a great opportunity to think about exploration and curiosity. The textbook definition of explorer is anybody, somebody who often makes dangerous, difficult, and unique journeys for the main purpose of bringing back news from faraway lands. It typically includes personal challenges and cultural differences. As much as it might be far-fetched, it is almost always driven by curiosity and a great willpower of making a difference. Shannon and I talk about her work and life and examine the titles Explorer and Exploration embracing female role models, and what it takes to balance family and work when it involves travel and adventure. To finish the setup for Shannon, I want to use her own writing to reflect the dynamics of being an explorer and pursuing an inquiry with all the nuances of cross-cultural experiences. I read from a Nat Geo article from 2018 where Shannon describes a moment on her arrival to a small oceanic island in Indonesia. After two flights and a long ferry ride through green islets, I am bumping along a red dirt road in a shared taxi with Hello Kitty images painted on its side. We're lurching into valleys covered by dense foliage, slowly climbing back up to beautiful overlooks and teetering on each precipice before dipping into the next valley. I am not alone in the taxi. I am sitting with a fish trader I just met and attempting to draw a fish I'm hoping to find. The trader says, yes, yes, me, I have, as he points to my drawing. I'm ecstatic. I've been searching for the royal blue tang, 
popularized by the film Finding Nemo and its sequel Finding Dory for the past few weeks. But the blue tang has been elusive. Absent from the more trafficked reefs of Bali, the largest export pub of aquarium fish in Indonesia. On a hunch, I have made my way to Bangai Island in central Sulawesi. The trader and I continue communicating by drawing, sprinkling in a few words of Bahasa, Indonesian, and English as we bump along toward his coastal village. Communicating is challenging yet invigorating. All my senses are firing. I'm alert and aware. I'm learning and exchanging. I feel I've inched beyond tourists to traveler, with a keen interest in how things work in this new-to-me place. I am meeting residents on their own terms in their own homes, not a hotel or a hostel built for my needs. Shannon is an artist and a scientist who merges the processes of art and science, all the while staying deeply connected to the water and the coastal communities. Celebrate Earth Day today and every day. Enjoy this conversation. And if you are enlivened by the stories we share on the When Women Flag podcast, share and let me know what you think. Without further delay, my conversation with Shannon Switzer Swanson. Shannon, I'm so thrilled to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me, Sylvia. So you're a surfer, marine social scientist, water woman, photojournalist, and you're also the granddaughter of one of the most pioneering women in aviation. So you blend theory and practice from a variety of fields. How do you like to introduce yourself? I refer to myself as a marine social ecologist because it nicely sums up and blends together the different fields um, and theories and frameworks that I work with. And I also call myself and introduce myself as a storyteller, a little bit broad of a term, but I think it encapsulates my love for telling stories through various mediums, through writing, through photography, and then also through my research, because research is essentially a form of storytelling, granted with systematically gathered evidence and data. But at the end of the day, you still tell a story around that data. I think that captures that well. And then I also use a broad term water woman because I love engaging with and interacting with the ocean and water in all of its various forms in many different ways. And so while I love surfing and I love free diving, I love sailing, I'm not particularly great at any one of those, but I'm, and I love them all. So Water Woman captures that. Yeah. So your research and your work as a PhD candidate, first of all, tell us the program you're in at Stanford. Yeah, I'm in the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in environment and resources. So it's a bit of a mouthful. We refer to it as EIPER, and that's housed within the School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences at Stanford. Okay, cool. You apply mixed methods from both social and natural sciences. Yes, that's correct. So my background's in biological sciences and the natural sciences um, from undergraduate. And I really felt like that was interesting, but I really wanted to bring in that human nature dimension to my to my work. And so now I use a lot of methods from cultural anthropology, like ethnography and embedded participatory observation, as well as understanding what motivates behavior and decision making. I draw on psychology for that. And as you said, then I, I look at marine ecology and how those natural systems are interacting. Mm-hmm. And you came to it from a uh career or a job, I would say, maybe that was a blossoming career in 
photojournalism and you were exploring quote unquote new research methods using film and photography to engage community members as active participants in and the research process. So what are those sort of quote new research methods and can you give an example of how these methods have impacted your findings differently than traditional data collection? Yeah, I think I have written about them as new methods and so it's fair to to quote that. I want to amend it a little bit to say that these methods have been around for a while but they were used more in the public health and education and critical feminist spaces. And they've more recently been now being applied in the environmental and conservation space to understand topics around environmental conservation. And so these methods are participatory methods. And then within those, there are a particular niche, which is visual participatory methods. And that's where we work with communities and research participants putting cameras in their own hands and then having them document their lives and what's important to them in their in their own lives and then sharing that with us. And these are really interesting methods because the nature of images are that they help people recall rich memories and rich details that that are quite in a very different way from how words and numbers do. And so it's been really interesting to use them in my thesis work. I've seen how they bring up topics that I wouldn't have thought to ask about. One example was an image that one of the fishermen shared of his son studying the Quran. And his story around that was that this was important to him because Hopisi, the village he lived in, wasn't yet participating in this competition, this local competition where kids could recite and learn and recite the Quran. And he thought that this was really critical that they participate because nowadays, People were taking more from the ocean without asking for permission or without thinking about the principles taught in the Quran about being grateful for what you're given. And I just wouldn't, I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing what he said. His words were much more eloquent. But I, you know, that's a connection that I just I hadn't thought to ask about. And so this is a way that these images really bring forth this very rich information and connections. Mm -hmm. Because you wouldn't have even had the insight to inquire about that or understand that nuance. Correct. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I had known that the more the traditional beliefs around spirits in the sea and this idea, what people often refer to as like animistic beliefs, I knew that this group um, that I worked with held some of those beliefs more in the past. But what was interesting to me is I didn't understand that, that link between Islam and them actually seeing Islam now as being a way that was still sort of mandating or showing or showing a way about how to care for the environment. And so I thought that that, yeah, that was something I never would have thought to ask about. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah. And another really cool aspect of these methods are that they do give more ownership to the community participants. And so even though in this case with my thesis work, I was asking about the perception of time, that was a, a big theme of mine was understanding how these different different fishing groups and communities perceive time. But they, in addition to answering that, they also were able to just talk about whatever else was important to them and show that again with, with images. And lastly, it's a really nice way for them to actually then share their story with other 
groups or communities or institutions that they want to have an audience with. So for example, one really cool part of a photo voice effort that I did during my my research was with a, a group of octopus fishermen. And it culminated in us having a gallery showing of some of images they selected that they wanted to share with some of the local government agents in the area. And it was so inspiring to see the pride that they took in their images and their narration, their captions on the images, and to see how proud they were of those when they were able to share those with these officials who often just come and regulate them and find them, tell them not to do things. And these officials were, were admiring you know, their work and their lives. It's a, it, there's a lot of potential for these methods, and I'm really excited as a researcher to continue to explore how to use them productively. It's interesting. It's you are both being a storyteller, but you're also enabling these people to have the ability, the agency to tell their own story. So that's really powerful. So a question about photography for you personally, when did it become something that was a research method as opposed to taking photographs of, I think your initial trip, your sailing trip was, was documenting? But then it seems like there was a shift from documenting to actually being a tool. And maybe that's nuanced, but I I think you understand the question. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a good question. I actually, I haven't really mapped that out before. But yeah, so for me, it has always been a tool in the sense that I love, as I mentioned earlier, telling stories. And I initially came to love that through words. And then photography became this tool in a sense, another way, another dimension to add to this ability to tell a a compelling story. And then when I got back into research and I was discovering ways people had used images in the past, I had no idea this type of research existed prior to going back to do my master's. And when I discovered it, I was so excited. It was like all these various threads of my life connected and When I realized too that it's an area that I'm passionate about, but I also feel that I have something to contribute to and that it can be a really powerful tool as far as trying to decolonize research and especially research like someone like myself, a Westerner, an outsider coming into a different country and communities that I'm not a part of, a way to really try to rebalance that sort of power dynamic and give more agency to the local community. I think it's really neat when a tool that's typically used for documentation or in the art world is appropriated or or used in the context of science because I think I, I agree I think there's a lot of potential there and it's really neat to see what you're what you're doing there. Let me ask you a little bit about the impact of your research specifically on these fishing communities because it seems like your work you know the goal is really to find ways that are both sustaining prosperous livelihoods and a healthy environment. And those are often in conflict. So how do you navigate that? And how is that received by the fishing communities? Yeah, it's a really great question. I'm still trying to find the balance between those two things. So my interest as a, again, an outsider and a researcher and someone who cares about the ocean, you know, capital O, (laughs) and also remembering that these spaces that I care about protecting are someone's home and some and a place where they have longstanding legacy and ancestry and relationship with. And so 
one of my inquiries was around what motivates destructive fishing practices. So why do some fishermen in this case, in this region where I was, use cyanide to catch aquarium fish because they feed into the global aquarium fish trade there and also bombs to catch food fish? And why do some choose not to use that and those practices? And so it was hard for me to, it felt, I have to say, it felt a bit disingenuous in that I was interested in these destructive practices, but that's not necessarily what the fishermen wanted to talk about, or they really didn't want to, especially because they're illegal. And to try to express that I wasn't there to get them in trouble. I wasn't there to say what they're doing is wrong necessarily. I just was really, truly wanting to understand what motivates it. But I think, yeah, it's a fine line to walk for sure, because then I'm also developing really personal relationships with these families and wanting to make sure that the research I do does in some way improve or I don't even want to say improve, but in some way enriches their lives is not, you know, just completely extractive. And so I kind of, at the end of my time there felt like, you know, the these fishing families should be able to do whatever they want, to be honest. Who am I to say that they shouldn't use practices that are efficient and that to them make sense in this context? I'm still, you know, as a trying to be a reflexive researcher always and and trying to think about what research community-based research might look like moving forward with these communities and elsewhere, and what is truly participatory and meaningful to communities I might work with in the future. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot there, but. Yeah, it is, there is a lot. There is a lot. I really, I feel that. And I really give you so much credit for diving into something that's inherently so complex. And, you know, it, you're sort of setting yourself up for a really confusing situation. <laughs> Even the seed idea for this research, if I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but came in, came from the movie Finding Dory, which you were aware of the aftermath of Finding Nemo and the surge in purchases of clownfish and how that in turn caused environmental and animal harm. And this um, sort of Nemo effect could happened to the blue tang. And so you were sort of at the right frame of mind, the right time, the right place. And that became the seed idea for investigating how the aquarium trade and the and the fishers would be affected by this cartoon movie in the Western world. So even that premise is has so much complexity, so much complexity to it, right? We're sort of imposing this demand on a community and a natural environment that it's not a natural demand. And we're sort of the we meaning Western world or, you know, are so part of the problem. And thus, I understand the sense of responsibility to be part of a solution or to better understand what is actually going on in, in all its nuance. So your central inquiry, I believe, is to understand the aquarium trade and how these native habitats affect are affected by the collectors of aquarium. Aquariums. When I was looking at some papers when I was leading up to our conversation, I found this opposing article, which I thought was really interesting, that was clearly trying to position the counter argument, saying that in fact, movies like Finding Dory and Finding Nemo were actually creating conservationists. And that also reminded me of your collaborator, who was also part of the inspiration of your work, who was a is a man who grew up in Colorado who had a, a 
tank of fish and then indeed became a marine biologist. So it's inherently so complex and I I really understand that. And uh, I think what you're trying to do is just really admirable and requires both the explorer and the scientist and the artist. And and that's a, that's a unique blend. Can you summarize, you know, I think this is probably a really hard question, but what you found from that work? But no, everything you said is so dead on. And uh, the aquarium project, it, it was born from a storytelling grant from National Geographic, right as I was going into my thesis work into the PhD program. And so I never intended to study it as part of my thesis. But once we did this more storytelling aspect where we wanted to show the international supply chain from a reef in Indonesia all the way to someone's home in Colorado, as you mentioned, I found the whole system really interesting and all the nuances and complexities as you you so eloquently described, really interesting. And then I found especially the the source villages and the fishermen who were operating at that level to collect the fish from you know the very beginning of the supply chain to be yeah in this sort of destruction paradox so at this they kind of are put between a rock and a hard place in that the western demand comes in as you're saying and creates this new market which in, in theory is great because then there is another source of income for their um, to earn a livelihood and that's partially what my work is looking at is how does this actually contribute to their their livelihoods and their income but then at the same time they are become these environmental subjects that are pointed at as being using these destructive methods to that catch the fish efficiently that people want <laughs> that and they're just responding to a demand so it is all very complex what i also found while i was there and so it brought in just from just looking at the aquarium trade but was that these fisher People are also fishing across many different species and into and um, supplying many different markets. And the aquarium trade is just one little bit of that. And it does provide flexibility uh, when other species, you know, have an off year for breeding or the weather is not good for catching these other species that are further out. So I did find that. And then also my inquiry around time was really looking at more broadly, again, it's related to the aquarium trade, but really trying to understand if a perception of time then influences decisions around around using resources. So would a fisher who has a shorter time horizon be more willing to use destructive practices than one who's thinking five to 10 years ahead? And so that's the data I'm really still deep in right now. And I inquired about that through a couple of different methods. One is the photo voice method. So I'm in, I'm currently coding all of the interviews going through and trying to see what themes are arising. And so far I am seeing that some, I did a comparative case study. So uh, three different fishing communities, I was looking at their responses. And so far I'm noticing that the community that was further out in the outer islands and hadn't engaged with at all with local NGO that operated in the area, a non-governmental organization, their time horizon was within the year or two years. And that community that had already engaged with this local NGO and started fisher groups and started investing in various small loans and all these, these sort of different programs that the NGO had implemented, that their time horizon started to shift to more of this like five to 10 year. Mm-hmm. 
And that piece of the research, and I'm still, again, sifting through all of that. So Yeah, but the, the question of time and the impta- impact of shifts in that mindset of what time means is, it sounds like it's, it's a finding, not a resolution, but a finding. Absolutely. That's a great segue into talking about National Geographic, their programs, and also the idea of being an explorer. Let's start with this idea of being an explorer. And first of all, on a personal level, being an explorer is following in your grandmother's shoes. Can you tell me about what you knew about your grandmother, Genevieve Hurd? Yes. She grew up in Florida (laughs) and she, I wasn't really close with her. I probably interacted with her maybe 10 times in my life, but I always knew of her and thought of her as this very charismatic, almost celebrity because my mom would share with me that article clippings of her being hanging out with Amelia Earhart and doing these different air shows and things like that. And so she was one of the, of that era, one of the female, first female pilots in that time. And she also (laughs) later in life, I know she was still like, she would lead her, her retirement community in clogging lessons. And she played the ukulele and she was just this really charismatic woman and just had this heart and spirit for adventure and for sharing that with, with people. And so though I wasn't that close with her, I still feel like she I feel her in my life, especially as I started venturing out more and exploring the world. Yeah. I also, my grandmother is meaningful in a different way as well, because I, the reason I don't know that much about her is because uh, her and my mom had a bit of a falling out and a bit of a, a rough, my mom had a bit of a rough upbringing in their home. And so my mom, in a way, has also been one of my heroes. And I think of her as very, adventurous person in that she really tried to take a good look at what went wrong in her childhood and what things were unhealthy that she didn't want to repeat for the next generation. And she ended up becoming a marriage and family therapist through that exploration and self-examination. In my eyes, she's just as big of an adventurer and explorer because she was willing to face those, those demons and those things from the past that were really painful so that I then wouldn't have to. And both my parents, actually, they met through therapy and had similarly distraught childhoods. So I really admire both of them. Yeah. You know, I mean, if we can break the chain and be better as parents and contributors in the world, I think then we are doing something. I agree. It takes a lot of exploration to both fly airplanes in the 1930s as well as doing that inner work of how to be a better person and how to be in relationship with, with someone else. So that's, that's really interesting. And now you have your own way of manifesting the sense of spirit and exploration. Yeah, that's really cool. The idea of an explorer, going back to that, typically, at least when I was a kid, I sort of thought as of an explorer and certainly a National Geographic explorer as sort of a white middle-aged man with a beard and maybe a pickaxe and perhaps on top of a mountain or an ice field. But there is a history of women explorers and photographers at uh, National Geographic, and it's pretty inspiring. Do you have any role models? Yeah, oh, so many. <laughs> I mean, the I think every girl that loves the ocean loves Sylvia Earle and all that she's you know really done as a pioneering explorer. But I also think there's people who have taken that that sort of beginning and expanded upon what exploration looks like. It doesn't 
necessarily mean going to the depths of the ocean. There's so many different ways that that can manifest. And there's a female photographer, Christina Mittermeier, whose work I deeply admire. She's co-founded the Sea Legacy um, organization, and she does a lot of really incredible work working with local communities and indigenous groups and people in positions of less power to protect their resources. And she, I just admire her work a lot, as well as Asha DeVos. She is a Sri Lankan blue whale researcher and she, her work is just incredible. And she came from, you know, not having a ton of resources or any, as I understand, many connections in the research world and just paid close attention to what was going on in her home country around these whales that, as you say, like these white Western researchers thought they knew everything about. And she said, nope, these whales do this thing that you don't know about. And I'm telling you, and I discovered it. So she's just really inspirational. And as well as two of my colleagues, actually, who I worked on with the Reef to Aquarium project with, Andrea Reed, who's now a professor at University of British Columbia. And she does incredible work with her with First Nations there, and she's of First Nations descent and has partnered with them to study the ecology of salmon, but also the close relationship that those communities have with salmon. So she's doing incredible work. <laughs> and I'll just, the last the last one I'll mention, there's so many though, but... You can keep going as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, Michaela Wujek is also, I worked on the Reef to Crime Project with, and she's now founded her own women's clothing company for outdoor adventure and she it's all sustainable supply chain and fair and ethical labor practices and she's just incredible as well so I feel so blessed to work with and to know I don't personally know Asha DeVos but I have had the opportunity as I said to work with Andrea and Michaela and I just think the world of them and and all the women I just know so many incredible women so they're always inspiring yeah, I mean, I can tell in in the way that you answered that and just the energy that you answered that is inspiring to you. And, you know, the collective energy of having women that are inspiring and are inspired by you and each other is is really, really neat. And I really love, and we've talked about this before, how you are actively, you, you know, the collective you all are actively redefining what the word explorer means, you know, the optics around exploration. And I would say National Geographic is is part of that. I mean, they certainly endorse and support the all sorts of groundbreaking scientists and conservationists, educators and storytellers. And each one seems to be sort of infinitely curious about our planet, including you. Absolutely. Yeah. I just to briefly add, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it's just National Geographic has been great about being open to those conversations and and saying, yeah, tell us how you feel. And if you're feeling that exploration and explore is a very colonial, you know, word with a lot of undertones, you know, and historical racist and other, you know, negative connections, we need to talk about that. And how can it evolve? How can it better represent the diversity of people who are now participating in this kind of groundbreaking research and work and how can we support you to take ownership of it. So I think it's been pushed by the the explorers and they are the really dry, the ones driving the conversation, especially the BIPOC, the Black, Indigenous and people of color 
explorers. They're for sure the ones that have this vision that's so needed and long overlooked. So they're driving it, but National Geographic and my experience has been really supportive of it. Yeah, it's so great. I'd love to talk more about your involvement there, but you've had a few different stages and phases, including being honored in 2017 with the National Geographic Adventure of the Year. But your beginning there was as a Explorer grantee to do a local research project. Can you just take us briefly through the different associations you've had with NetGeo up until this last, most recent documentary that was just released, The Last Drop? Yeah, absolutely. So my first connection with them even goes back before I had my first grant with them. And that was through documenting a surfing and sailing trip right after I graduated from UC Santa Barbara with female captain Liz Clark. And I was first mate and unofficial photographer and documenter of the trip from Santa Barbara down to Costa Rica. And so I, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time with this incredible person people wanted to know about and see what life was like on the boat. And so I was published with National Geographic Adventure magazine when that was still around and then Patagonia and a couple of other of her, of her sponsors. That was a great taste of what, you know, the sort of adventure, sustainable lifestyle type of photojournalism work that I could do and I pursued that for a little while. Um, but then I was really interested in getting back to sort of my my biology and my conservation and natural sciences background and that's when I decided to apply for the Young Explorer Grant, which was what it was called at the time with National Geographic. Now it's called the Early Career Grant Program. But at the time, I had a, several friends who, and actually one was is my now husband, who almost died from a bacterial infection that they got. And so two friends almost died. And then other people just have, you know, it's very common for surfers to get sick with ear infections or whatnot after surfing and after a big rain event when pollution runs into the into the water. So uh, that really motivated me to try to tell this story of what pollutants run into the rivers and streams on land and then how that accumulates and affects coastal health and human health. Mm-hmm. So that was my first project with them. And it was a storytelling grant. So specifically focused on the photography and that narrative. But it actually really motivated me to want to gain a deeper expertise in um, coastal issues and so and and in this like human nature connection. So that's when I decided to go back to my master's program to to get a master's degree at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. And then I was so hooked on the research I learned about there was where I learned about these visual participatory methods that I decided to con- that I wanted to continue into the PhD. And ever since then, I've continued to work with National Geographic in various ways. So I've, it's been just a, a springboard for various opportunities. I've worked with their travel department, with their Nat Geo Kids department. And then most recently, as you mentioned, I worked, co-hosted this documentary on water conservation in the West with actor Adrian Grenier. And really cool. It was produced by the production company owned by uh, Morgan Freeman. So that was really fun. (laughs) Um, And so yeah, these projects have just been kind of, I mean, they all have some connection for sure, but they do sometimes feel random, but it's really fun because it keeps things fresh and it keeps me thinking about my work in different ways. Yeah, it's really neat. It's neat to see the steps that mark your development and commitment 
to a central theme from being a young investigator and to, you know, this last film. Do you have any advice for anyone? I mean, I, I want to say of any age looking to get involved in the Explorers program or programs with National Geographic. You know, I think a lot of my audience does share a sense of exploration, you know, in their own way that we've talked about. And many are photographers or journalists or things like this. And I don't, I think a lot of people don't really know how you would get into those programs. Absolutely. I get, I get a lot of emails and messages from people really excited about wanting to get involved specifically, as you say, with National Geographic, because it has such a, a name around the world. I tell everyone apply for the grants because that is through the society side and the society side is who funds, you know, this type of research and storytelling work and the grants, they, they really just want to see you excited about a project that you care about, what your personal connection is to it and what specific skills you bring, you're going to bring to it and new insight. I think people can be intimidated when thinking about working with an entity like National Geographic, but it's really just a collection of people who love the learning about the world. It really is. It's just a, it's an amazing a collection of people who care a lot about our planet. And so you already have anyone listening, you already have something in common, you know, with these people who would be reviewing your proposals. So I would say, yeah, absolutely. Don't feel like you're not this enough or that enough. If you have a good idea that you're passionate about and you can explain it well and why you're the person to do it, I think they're really open to funding work. That being said, there is a pause on grants right now because of COVID, but they they will be opening again, you know, as soon as that's possible. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm happy to field more specific questions from anybody. I got a lot of help along the way, so I'm happy to be, yeah, to have anybody contact me about that. Yeah, cool. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about surfing. When did you learn how to surf and where and why and what keeps you going back? It's actually ironic because I grew up in San Diego, but a little bit more inland. I grew up in my younger years riding horses with my mom, but also sailing with my dad. But I didn't actually surf until I really got into it when I went to undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara. And I was reflecting the other day, I basically we lived, you know, I lived right on the water. So I grabbed my, my dad had given me a long time ago, his old um, shortboard that was shaped by Donald Takayama, which is a locally famous shaper in, in San Diego. And I think he's pretty famous worldwide, but anyway, he had this old vintage board and that's what I learned on. And I went by myself to Sands and I went way down the beach where nobody was, I couldn't run into anybody. No one could, you know, laugh at me. And I just tried to teach myself on this old on this old shortboard. And needless to say, it took quite a while for me to get the hang of it. And eventually I, you know, I made friends and female friends, especially who surfed. And then it was more of a, a group event. But that was my my early memories of just me by myself in these like pretty dumpy waves and trying to, to learn. So I ever since then I just fell absolutely in love with it. And I I it was again one of those moments where all these things came together. It was exercise, it was being in the ocean, it was being out in the elements, it was seeing. I remember a couple of times, one was on Earth Day, I saw a gray whale come right nearby at sands, like within, I don't know, like 10 meters maybe, and just hang out. And it was, I think maybe scratching on the sh the sandbar or something. But anyway. 
just getting to be close to wildlife in that way too. And all, and having that time, that's just, it, it feeds me. Yeah. And it does exercise a lot of different parts of you, both the the physical and then also just the the curiosity of, and the connection of being in nature. And you dive also a lot and you interact with water in a lot of different ways. And you've been to many places around the world. Can you tell us if there's been any circumstance that was frightening? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, you know, as a, as a woman traveling alone, there's definitely times when your sort of hairs rise on the back of your neck and you're like, this isn't a good situation to be in. And I don't, I don't have a particular story of anything too horrible that happened, but, but yeah, definitely always very aware of that feeling and just being ready to get myself out of a situation quickly when I, I'm not feeling comfortable. And I think that's just really important as for anybody, you know, who's vulnerable traveling to listen to that and to listen to yourself. But I'm, I'm mostly very traveling has helped me to feel that I could connect or have a connection with any single person on the planet. Like there's, there's no one in the world that I couldn't find some point of commonality and common humanity with. And I think that one of the really great things about traveling and, and having the, the privilege to travel. Yeah, that's, I agree with you. There's a question that I have for you because I think you have a perspective that not many people do and experience and it's about traveling and it's about being away from home and being in a committed relationship because a lot of explorers and a lot of people listening to this have lives that take them away from their home either you know like you for a year or for a long period of time but you know for two weeks or two months every time what did you learn what were the challenges and is there any thing that you would share with us about both being an explorer but also you know now your mom too um and you were married and when you were away for a year and <laughs> in a tiny little fishing village yeah if there's any wisdom that came out of that or anything you can share to an audience that you know may also be in circumstances where they're weighing the pros and cons of that type of thing yeah absolutely i think first of all i've been very i'm very very grateful for the support that i have had from my from my partner ben he i think it's really hard to do this kind of work when you don't have a partner that's supportive so and i think it you know it is it is sort of this i when i was going to go away i felt a lot of guilt about it and i think there's this idea that it's i felt that there was this idea that it's okay for the man to go away <laughs> And that's just more common in our society with the military being predominantly male and being gone for long stretches of time. Um, nobody questions that, right? That's, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe people do, but it's, it's generally a little bit more accepted as something that people do and families get through. And I did, it was interesting to have that be me and the woman going and hearing responses from people like that, that was less understood. It was more surprising. It was you know, all these sorts of things. And so that, yeah, that was a really interesting thing to navigate. And I did have a lot of, I, to be honest, I did have a lot of guilt around it. Cause of course, like that person you're leaving behind sacrifices a lot. And so I eternally grateful to him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he also really, as, as far as to your question about being in this new space and being there for a long time without having had his support. And I still was able to, you know, contact him 
when I was in areas with internet, but I had a sat phone. So we often were just having these like really short (laughs) messages for a month or two at a time. But that was, I wouldn't have enjoyed my time as much there and felt as supported if I, if I hadn't had that at home. So I just all the credit to Ben (laughs) for being so supportive. Yeah. And again, I think it is a, it's a privilege. Not everybody can just pick up and leave and go for a year. Um, and so I always try to remember that as well. It's, I put myself in, you know, in pretty, I was in living in rustic conditions and we, there was no electricity and there was no running water, but I chose to do that. And I, you know, millions of people, that's their daily reality and they make the best of it and they build beautiful lives still. And so I try to always remind myself of that. Like I, I chose to put myself in that situation. And so I try not to focus on that as much because I also think it diminishes the, like I said, the beauty of the people's lives that I encountered. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I could go on and on about this, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. And I also, I want to mention real quick that there's a really cool book that I have one chapter in and, but it has a lot of perspectives of women researchers and it's called femininity in the field. And each chapter is based on a female perspective from a different stage in her life. So one is a single female doing field work in a in an area away from home. Uh, one is mine is a married woman. Then there's a married one with children, and then I think there's a single mom. There's all these different variations of women ex- in their experience doing field work and reflecting on how their their identity as a female affects that. So it's a really cool book and yeah. That's really interesting, actually. Would you like to travel with your family or do you imagine doing more travel or what role will travel play now that you're a mom and at a different stage in life? Yeah, Ben and I have been chatting about this. <laughs> TBD, that could be an answer too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, we'll see. I I am definitely committed to being here for, I mean, right now, obviously, COVID really shut that door anyway. <laughs> yeah, that helps a lot of us decide what to do. Totally. But yeah, I mean, I would love, I I do plan to, you know, continue these relationships with the communities that I've been working with in Indonesia and the Philippines as well for my master's work. So at some point, when it makes sense for our family, I would, I would love to bring little Tor and Ben also, he, he hasn't actually gotten to spend time with the community. So it would be really, I would love to be able to do that. And I think there'll be a a right time for it. Yeah. And I bet for the community as well to see you come back, that would be very meaningful to them, I bet too, if if that ever is an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sure, you have strong ties to to them after living so intimately for that time. Yeah, definitely. And it it is nice there. They're starting to get more connectivity, which, you know, brings its own set of other issues, but it has been able to open it up to me being able to connect with them more regularly just via internet. So that's nice as well. Yeah. Shannon, what's been the most useful advice given to you along your journey? Or what advice do you wish you were given when you were younger? Let's wrap up with closing thoughts and an open-ended invitation for you to share whatever you have garnered from a 10,000-foot perspective. Yeah, I think so. One piece of useful advice that I've been given along the way is was from my mom. <laughs> Bring her up again. But it was a time when I was not, I was just not sure what to do. I graduated. I had done the sailing trip, but I was in this place where I was waitressing and just feeling a little bit lost. And she just kept saying, just bloom where you're planted. And that's, I think, a com- I think people have heard that phrase. It's a common phrase. It wasn't, I had heard it before, but at that time in my life, it was such a, 
I held on to it. It was a little gem that I held on to in my pocket because it helped me to remember just to appreciate everything I had in that time and that space and um, make the most of it and focus on, you know, all that the resources that I had and make something with them. And I still go back to that a lot. And I would say any advice for for other people, but it's also advice for myself that I always, I'm still trying to live up to um, every day is just to always remember to question my assumptions about things, about anything, about groups of people, about an, an individual, about a topic. I think it's so easy along the entire spectrum of, you know, political, spiritual, scientific beliefs to invest in a way of thinking and then that can over time become rigid. And I think it's just really, really important to be open to re-examining that and those assumptions that I have about the world and that we all, you know, eventually get about the world. So I think question your assumptions, that's really important and always remember to be self-reflexive and always bring some, also some humor and playfulness to things too, because <laughs> when, especially you're working in the environmental realm, you have to keep keep it light and remembering the joy around what you're doing. Yeah. So it's a call to be curious, right? And a call to play, right? Not, you know, these are heavy issues. They're complex. They're often without a single answer. And yeah, I think bringing levity into, into life and remembering that. It's great that you've got a little, little kiddo there to remind you of that now too. <laughs> Absolutely. He is great for that. Yeah. <laughs> take not take myself too seriously. <laughs> not take yourself too seriously. That's right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, Shannon, thank you so much for taking this time. I just feel honored to speak with you. And I feel like you, you know, in 10, 20 years, you could just be a Jane Goodall with your sensitivity and your just your willingness to just get out there and be passionate about what you're doing, where you are. I love the I love your mom's quote, Bloom where you are. It's, you know, just do your thing and don't overthink components of it, which I think we all have the risk of. So thank you. Thanks so much. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you, Sylvia. This is such a treat. Thank you for listening to the When Women Fly podcast. My hope is that you leave this conversation with a sense of curiosity and empowerment to hold on to what is important and let go to what weighs you down. Stare fear in the face. If you like this episode of the When Women Fly podcast, be sure to share and subscribe and let us know what you think. We love feedback. Be brave, be bold, and fly. See you next time.